Well, if you have a Bible, please turn to the Old Testament and find the prophet Micah. As Jordan explained to us, Micah is, is in the, near the end of the Old Testament. There are 12 books called the Minor Prophets, and Micah is the sixth of those Minor Prophets. So if you find the bigger books of Ezekiel and then Daniel, you can then turn a little bit further toward the back of your Bible, passing Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and then you'll find Micah. You could also get there by finding Matthew in the New Testament and then turning a little bit toward the front of your Bible. So Micah chapter 7. In his classic and enduring book, The Knowledge of the Holy, Canadian pastor A.W. Tozer wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In our text today, Micah is inviting us to think about God. Who is He? What is He like? Who is a God like you? asks Micah, Micah 7.18. In fact, Micah's Hebrew name literally means who is like Yahweh. So it's as if he's reflecting on his own name as he says, who is a God like you? And, and I hope we'll see today that this entire book is speaking to us about who is God? What is he like? So as A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds as we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then Tozer explained exactly why he believes that. As he says, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, Tozer says... The gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what in his deep heart he conceives God to be like. We tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true, says Tozer, not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So, who is like Yahweh? That's what Micah means. What do you think about God? What do we as a church think about God. As Tozer says, how we answer these questions is the most revealing thing about the spiritual state of our soul. So I invite you to think with me today about God, who is like Him. Now, good Bible study always requires looking carefully at the text in its context. And as we look at the context of these last three verses of Micah chapter 7 that we read just a moment ago, we notice that they are very different than the rest of the book as they are words directed toward God rather than toward the people of Israel and Judah. Micah is, is speaking directly to God in these three verses, and that's different. 
because in the vast majority of this book, God himself is speaking to the people as he uses the pronoun I dozens of times. It is God speaking through his prophet. In other places in the book, the prophet is speaking about God in the third person as he uses the pronoun he. But in either case, I or he, the book is telling us what God is about to do. And what he will do is not pretty or pleasant. The vast majority of this book is about the judgment of sin. And nowhere else in these seven chapters do we see verses addressed to God as you. And these are the last verses in the entire book. So the, the first thing we must realize is that these three verses are a response to everything else in the book. At the end of all these prophecies spoken to the people of God, consisting of just over 100 verses, he addresses his last three verses to God. And so the, the 100 verses are the inspiration for the three verses, and we must ask ourselves what Mike, Micah has learned about God in those 100 verses. And the first thing that he has learned and revealed about God is, number one, if you're taking notes, the severe certainty of judgment. The severe certainty of judgment. Without the context, these three verses at the end of chapter 7 could be read as a get-out-of-sin-free card that God will always and unconditionally forgive our sins, that, that sin is just a trivial little thing, don't worry about it. No. We must never think that sin is no big deal to God, and that idea is certainly not here in the text. We see hints of that in the words itself as we read, Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity? and you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. If sin were a little thing, a, a trivial thing, a mistake, they would not need a pardon. If our sins were no big deal, then God would not to need, need not to deal with them so drastically as to cast them into the depths of the challenger deep. Those are some of the first hints in the text, but we see this very clearly throughout the entire book of Micah. The first three chapters of Micah loudly and boldly condemn the sins of Israel and Judah. Micah, by the way, was a contemporary of Isaiah, and he confronted many of the same problems as Isaiah. Micah 1.1 introduces him like this, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, those are the same kings, among others, that we saw as Andy preached uh, a few months ago through the book of Isaiah. And in chapter 1, now, the prophet Micah describes the total destruction, first of the northern kingdom called Israel, or Samaria, and then of the southern kingdom called Judah, or Jerusalem. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, God himself is speaking, that word I, and he says, therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open, company, open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. 
For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. God says, I will make Samaria, a beautiful city, into a heap of ruins, into overgrown fields. Then a few verses later, he addresses Jerusalem. He says, verse 9, for her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So an incurable wound, a, a fatal blow is coming to Jerusalem. And naturally, we would ask, why? Why are these judgments coming? Well, the, the first chapter speaks of idolatry. The second chapter tells of greed, coveting, violence, exploitation of the poor. Listen, for example, to the words of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. It is as if they dream even of evil. When morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Those last few words remind me of the wicked couple Ahab and Jezebel when they schemed to take away the vineyard of Naboth and they seized his fields by telling lies about him and then executing him. You can read that story in 1 Kings chapter, one, chapter 21. But to make what is probably an allusion to Ahab and Jezebel, the most horrible king and queen of, of Israel in their day, and make that allusion to Jerusalem is severe criticism. You see, idolatry, greed, coveting, wicked scheming, exploitation. He's not done yet. In the third chapter, God rebukes the false prophets who cry out, peace, peace, tickling the ears of their hearers rather than speaking a true word from God. He also condemns the leaders who pervert justice and take bribes. Listen to chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads, that's leaders, give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Now, what we've seen so far is the tone for most of the book. If sin were no big deal to God, why is he so angry with Samaria and Jerusalem? Why is a total destruction coming upon them? And what does all this have to do with the last three verses in chapter 7? Well, we must never imagine that sin is no big deal to God. No, very clearly, sin brings judgment. We are told in the Word of God to feast upon the words. And this chapter is not a happy meal. Now, chapters 4 and 5 bring a brief respite from these words of judgment, and I'll say more about those chapters in a bit. But this, this dark theme returns in chapter 6. Listen, for example, to verses 11 to 13. Shall I acquit the man? with wicked scales and a bag of deceitful weights. 
Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. Remember how Andy spoke a few weeks ago from Ephesians 4.1 about the image of a balance scale and the word worthy? Here also we have the image of the balance scale as he speaks of a, a wicked scale and deceitful weights. He's saying that the, the merchants were cheating people and overcharging them by having rigged scales and a, and a bag of light standards of weight so that people don't get what they pay for. So again, he condemns violence. We've seen that word violence several times already. Lies, deceit, exploitation. And then we come to the conclusion and the consequences for all these sins in the last verse of chapter 6. If you're following along in your Bible, look at the last verse of chapter 6. You sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, but you will not drink wine. Perhaps the Apostle Paul was thinking of those verses as he wrote Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. The consequences are coming. Now, at this point, I've given you a quick overview of the first six chapters, and nothing in these chapters even vaguely suggests the idea that we see in our text today at the end of chapter 7. What have we learned so far about God? The question before us is, as Micah asks, who is like God? Well, we've seen that God is the righteous judge of the whole earth, that the wrath of God is coming on those who reject His Word and disobey Him. We've seen the spiritual principle that what you sow, you will reap. So far, this book reminds me of a good bit of Romans 1.18 which says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, it is against this severe background of condemnation and judgment that we come to chapter 7. So we have a bit of a mystery and a puzzle before us. How in the world are we going to move from this view of God chapters 1 to 6, to the view of God at the end of chapter 7. And we have just 17 verses between here and there. And we have a huge gulf to bridge. We've seen the severe certainty of judgment. Now, the next section is the honest confession of sin. Number two, if you're taking notes, the honest confession of sins. Now, again, there's a, a shift. In chapters 1 to 6, the prophet is speaking on behalf of God to the people. Now it changes as the prophet is speaking on behalf of the people to God. Prophets do that at times. Another great example is Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel is confessing the sins of his nation, and he says in verses 5 to 7, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. But to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, 
to us open shame because of the treachery that they have committed against you. It's a great prayer, and I would invite you, if you decide to reflect further on this theme, to read all of Daniel chapter 9. And you'll find that it it is similar in many senses to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, verse 1, here is the first good news in the book, Micah 7, 1. As Micah begins with the words, woe is me. Good news? That doesn't exactly sound like good news. Woe is me. But when those words are spoken from the heart in an attitude of confession and repentance, they are very good news. We also see biblical allusions here. Where else do we know those words very well? What did Isaiah say when he saw the vision of God high and lifted up and the train of his robe filling the temple and the seraphim flying around him singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. What did Isaiah say? Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And it is that good confession, that conviction of sin that leads to cleansing and forgiveness, as Isaiah continues. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. When we confess, woe is me, because of our sins, from the heart, that is the first step toward knowing the great mercy, compassion, and forgiveness of God. God. And the following verses in Micah have a lot in common with Isaiah chapter 6, as Micah now confesses the sins of his people. All that 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 Jordan read in those first six verses of chapter 7 are a confession, not an indictment. This is no longer God saying, this is what's going to happen to you. This is Micah confessing, this is what has happened to us because of our sins. Micah 7.1, woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. In other words, the fields are barren. Sin had left them impoverished and hungry. And then society has become filled with violence, verse 2. The perversion of justice by bribes, verse 3. Mistrust even among friends, verse 5. The closest members of one's family can no longer trust one another, verse 6. What we see in the first six verses is the total disintegration of society and order. How does a nation, a people, a culture continue to function when sin becomes so rampant Well, the answer is it doesn't. Verse 4 sums it up well as it says of the great people, the leaders, the pillars of society. It says, the best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. 
What can you build with briars and hedges of thorns? Not much useful. Those who should be the oak trees of society are nothing but briars and hedges of thorns. But remember, starting with chapter 7, this is no longer God speaking words of judgment. This is Micah speaking words of confession. And confession is a good thing because here it brings us to the turning point, the hinge on which everything turns. And that's verses 7 to 9. If you look at nothing else today, look at Micah chapter 7, verses 7 to 9. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall. I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Those three verses are confession of sin on behalf of the nation. And yes, he uses the word I several times, but as we look at the, the greater context and especially the verses and the promises that follow, we, we see that the context is all national, promises of restoration for the nation. And so this is corporate confession. But here's the key thing. You cannot come to the knowledge of God expressed in verses 18 to 20 without going through verses 7 to 9. You can't get there without going through here, these three verses. And that little word, but, the beginning of verse 7 is one of the biggest words in the whole book because it signals the huge transition as the theme shifts from God's judgment to God's mercy. God's wrath to God's salvation. Oh, this verse reminds me a lot of Ephesians 2, 4, which Andy also preached on recently, how it speaks in verses Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, of how we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Ephesians 2, 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's exactly what Micah is about to describe. This little word, but, at the beginning of verse 7 also reminds me of Ephesians 2.13, which we also heard Andy preach on recently. The preceding verses speak of how the Gentiles were separated from Christ alienated from the people of God, strangers to the covenants and the promise, having no hope and without God. That's pretty bleak, right? No hope without God. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you see the significance of these verses in Micah? Confession and repentance in faith changes everything in our view of God and our relationship with God. Confession and repentance in faith changes everything in our view of God 
perhaps that's the big idea today. Confession and repentance changes everything in our view of God because that allows us to see God as revealed in verses 18 to 20. The society that was ruined, destroyed, disintegrating in verses 1 to 6 is now rebuilt and restored even better than it was before. Verse 11 pictures a new security as it says, a day for building of your walls. The boundary shall be far extended. A new security and the beginnings of a new prosperity that can continue in the next verse. And a new prominence among the nations. Verses 12 and 13, in that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. The earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. The end of chapter 6, we saw those severe words, you reap, but you will not sow. You sow, but you will not reap. Now the tables are turned. The very enemies who conquered them are now turned into a heap of ruins themselves because of the fruit of their deeds. This is also often the pattern in Scripture. Remember the prophet Habakkuk? How he complained to God, how is it, God, that you can use these wicked Chaldeans, these Babylonians to bring judgment on us because they're so much worse than we are? God said their, their judgment will come in due time. It's the same thing here. Again, the point is this. Because of repentance and confession in faith, the people of God are restored. They're restored to a new security, a new prosperity, a new prominence among the nations, and even better is the promise of a restored relationship with God. Verses 14 and 15. Shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. Again, we have allusions to many other scriptures. Verse 15 in particular is looking back to the Passover, the Exodus. And once again, God promises that he will lead and shepherd his people, and they will see marvelous things. Just as they saw marvelous things in the Exodus, God is again going to do marvelous things. And how much this book has completely turned on verses 7 to 9 because of confession and repentance. All those terrible consequences in verses 1 to 6 are reversed and restored in verses 11 to 17. So here's the gospel according to Micah. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, chapters 1 to 6. But when we repent, confess our sins, return to God, He is merciful and compassionate. He will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. So we finally come to our text today and the conclusion of my sermon. And everything else has just been the introduction. Number three, if you're taking notes, the character of God. Who is like God? What have we learned about God? Well, as I said earlier, verses 18 to 20 are the conclusion to the entire book. And so it's fitting that they are also the conclusion of this sermon. Let's hear them again. 
who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Is that the God you'd like to know? I hope so. How do you know God like that? Through confession, repentance, Because as we've seen, the problem through the entire book is sin. And God is holy and righteous, and therefore, He must judge sin. And these three verses have three different words for sin. It's called iniquity, transgression, and sins. The word iniquity speaks of that which is twisted, perverted, depraved. Twist it out of the shape that it should be into something wrong and wicked. The word transgression speaks of crossing a border, stepping over a line. The word sin speaks of missing the mark. When we sin, it is all those things. It's twisted. It's stepping over the line. It's missing the mark. But just as there are three words for sin, there are three things that God will do with those sins for those who have repented, for those who have turned and come back to Him. He pardons iniquity. We've heard that news, that word in the news a fair bit lately as people were hoping for a pardon over things that they had done because a pardon means that they can never again be prosecuted for those crimes. God pardons our iniquity. He passes over is the second thing. That's an allusion to the Passover, how He passed over the children of Israel and did not bring judgment upon them in the days of the Exodus. And now He passes over our transgressions. And the third is that He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So this is the gospel message just as from the New Testament. All our iniquities, sins, and transgressions have made a huge chasm between us and God. But we come to Him in genuine and honest confession, repentance and faith. Great and wonderful things happen. Not only those things that we've seen, but it says He will have compassion on us. Verse 19. And the compassion of God is one of the most beautiful themes of Scripture. When God revealed Himself to Moses, remember that scene where He hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and caused all His glory to pass by? He spoke words to Moses, Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what God said way back there to Moses is so similar to what He says now to Micah. God is slow to anger. Micah adds He will not stay angry forever because He delights in steadfast love. God loves to love. So instead of judging us, He 
passes over our sins. He treads our iniquities under his feet. Literally, the idea is he stamps on them. And he casts them into the deepest places of the sea. What a wonderful picture that is. Now, now think about ancient times and the depths of the sea. When something was down in the deeps of the sea, it was gone forever. They didn't have robotic unmanned submarines like we do today that can go down two miles and explore the wreck of the Titanic. The point is, our sins are gone forever. They can never be recovered. Somebody has cleverly said about this text, God casts our sins into the depths of the sea, and then he puts up a no fishing sign. I will add to that, he establishes a no diving and no submarines zone. Our sins are gone forever, and they're never coming back. Now, how can God do that? How can the righteous judge of the whole earth pass over sins and fail to judge them? And that question brings us to the last verse in the book. As verse 20 says, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. How can God pass over our sins? Well, the answer is God always keeps his covenants. God always keeps his promises. And from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, God has promised a Savior. He alludes here to the covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. God said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How? Will all the families of the earth from Jerusalem to Erie and Jaya be blessed? Well, the answer is one we all learned in Sunday school, right? Jesus. Jesus coming from the line of Abraham, all the families of the earth. Are blessed. How does God tread all of our sins under his feet? How does God cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea and recall them no more? It's because of Jesus. The shadow of the cross is everywhere in the Old Testament, but in some places it is more sharply in focus than in others. And the shadow of the cross falls very clearly and distinctly across these last three verses of Micah. It is in Christ that God accomplishes this kind of forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf, that's Jesus on the cross, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's justification. Through Jesus on the cross, God casts all our sins into the depths of the sea, and he remembers them no more. They're gone forever. Remember what I said a few minutes ago about chapters 4 and 5 being a brief respite from those words of judgment, condemnation? They also point to Jesus. Micah 4, verses 1 and 2. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. 
It shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, as proclaimed throughout the Scriptures, especially in the New Testament and the book of Revelation. The presence of Christ becomes even more clear in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 4. See if you don't recognize verse 2 from Christmas time. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That's Jesus. Verse 4, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Who is it who reestablishes the security of Jerusalem, his people, and restores all the promises and restoration that we read in chapter 7? Well, it's Jesus. So how do we move from the very real condemnation of sin, chapters 1 to 6, and, uh, 1 to 3, and again in chapter 6? Well, the way leads straight through Bethlehem. O little town of Bethlehem. How still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. That's Jesus. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That's Jesus. Born of the Virgin Mary in the little town of Bethlehem is how we move from judgment to mercy from wrath to compassion and to peace with God. So as we read these verses in Micah over the next six months, the next three months, I want us to remember how Micah came to this conclusion about God. The shadow of the cross falls clearly and distinctly across these three verses. For practical application, when you think about God, what is the first thing that comes to mind? I think it should be something like this based on Micah. When I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for my sins, I can say with confidence, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And that promise to the fathers from the day of old, that also is Jesus. I began by quoting A.W. Tozer when he wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He followed that up saying, we tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Well, if this is our mental image of God, there's another application. Let us also move toward that image of God. 
Let us strive to be like him. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Or 1 Corinthians 11.1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In the Lord's Prayer, we're taught to pray, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Let us learn to forgive and cast others' sins into the depths of the sea when they have sinned against us. Who is like God? Let's pause for a moment of silent personal reflection. Oh God, I pray that this brief reflection on you and your word from Micah draws us to think great thoughts of you, your compassion, your mercy, your forgiveness, and your love, all expressed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.